Hello, listeners. This is Rusty Reno at First Things Magazine, and I'm at the editor's desk for the next episode of the editor's desk. And I have with me Micah Maddox, the author of The Integrity of Poetry from the February 2023 issue. And Micah is, among other illustrious roles, the poetry editor of First Things Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Micah. Thanks for having me, Rusty. Dana Joya, you take his 1991 article, Can Poetry Matter, as a kind well, then ultimately it's a book, isn't it, that he wanted? That's up correct. That's correct. In 92, collected in a book with other essays. That's right. You take that as your jumping off point. And so I ask you, where have we come since he penned that, I guess, the lament about the role of poetry in American society? Yeah, right. In that in that article and also in the book, Joya observes that this strange situation where we have all of these poets writing and publishing and no one reading their poetry. And he argues, in <laughs> fact, that poetry had, had become a sort of exchange uh, medium, that you would write these poems and um, publish them in small, usually university press literary journals that no one reads and sits on the shelves in libraries in order to get that tenure track job you know, at University of Pennsylvania. And, and that this was, he says sort of a, a violence against poetry, the integrity of poetry had been and harmed and that essentially the, the audience for poetry was no longer there because poets had abandoned the, the, the general reader. And so he made this, this argument that poets need to begin writing for a general audience, reading their poems on the radio. Teachers need to begin encouraging students to memorize poetry, to sort of recreate an audience for poetry. So I start with that and say, well, where are we now? Is our uh, poets writing for a general audience, or are they still ignoring them and writing for essentially a, a coterie of other of other MFA professors and so forth? And it's interesting because, in some respects, we're in a better place. That poets are some poets are writing for a general audience, and I mentioned a number of these these poets, Chris uh, Wyman and, and and others and. And there's a, a number of bright spots in in, in poetry today that there that there you know that what I think didn't exist back back then. At the same time, we also see a number of other poets, and I, I focus on the insta poets who are writing for a general audience. That's a great term, <laughs> and, by the way. I yeah, like that. Yeah, the the uh, insta poets, as they're called, who are writing for a general audience, and so and people are reading their uh, their their poetry, but it's just uh, atrocious, and uh, and and they're making a killing doing it. They publish their poems on Instagram, and and usually you know use a, a decorative font and sometimes a picture of themselves scantily dressed, and then they sell these volumes of, of poems in, in Barnes and Noble, and and they and they sell you know hundreds of thousands of, of volumes uh, of, of these works, and so. So on the one hand, let me just let me give listeners a um, a taste of the Insta poet. I guess that yes. comes from posting your poems on Instagram. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is you. You give you give the example of Rupi Kaur, mm -hmm. her poem, very popular. I gather, not your hobby. And this is how it goes: You cannot walk in and out of me like a revolving door. I have too many miracles happening inside me to be your convenient option. <laughs> right. As you point out, it kind of runs on sentiment cliches. So how do you characterize that? Well, I mean, it's, it, it is sort of sentimental. It uses ready-made 
metaphors, ready-made ways of thinking about the world to appeal to largely an adolescent female audience, you know, in, in the dating circle. And on the one hand, like there's, you know, we have this in pop songs, these uh, lyrics that are not great art and that yes. people uh, listen to because it consoles them in, in their life. Uh, but it's not great. It's not great poetry. And, and I go on to argue that other poets, you know, who sort of are claiming to be great poets or at least accomplished poets like Amanda Gorman, who who wrote for the inaugural uh, Joe Biden, that her poetry is sort of characterized by the, the same sort of recycled language and ready-made sentiments and so forth. She's not trying to, 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 to write political poetry to change people's feelings. She's writing poetry that capitalizes on political feelings that are already there and that she knows is going to play well to the audience in order to, you know, become popular. And she has become popular. She now you know, reads for the, she read her poetry for the Super Bowl and, and she now sponsors, you know, various merchandise, including perfume and so forth. And, and she has an agency that gets her these gigs. She only takes gigs that, gigs that she believes in personally. So we know that she's, you know, <laughs> being authentic, authentic. And, yeah, in making her 20 to $30 million a year in sponsoring these, uh, these things. And so, so on the one hand, you know, this is still poetry is sort of a, an exchange a means to, of exchanging poetry for something else, in this case, you know, making money. And uh, so you have that. And then, but then I also go on and I spend most of the time in the article arguing and kind of trying to hit a little bit closer to home and say, if if these insta-poets are still sort of um, engaging in this exchange uh, approach of poetry, and if we still have the academic poets who are still writing poems that no one reads in order to get a tenure track job, and and these are again poetry as a means to an end, not a poetry for itself. Conservatives, I argue, or, or traditionalists in some ways, or Christians in other ways, do also approach poetry in a in, in a more nobler, but I think a, you know a, a similar way, which is to value poetry only for what it teaches us in terms of virtue. Uh, right. or how it helps us to avoid vice. And this elevation of the moral content of poetry, reading poetry only for what it teaches us in the area of the moral imagination or whatever we want to call it, is also kind of an abandonment of the integrity of poetry. You know, that that poetry is is not just a tool to be used in the moral formation of young people. Not that it doesn't form us in, in moral ways, but to value it largely for that, in some ways only for that, is, is a kind of a betrayal, to use uh, Joya's words, of the integrity of poetry. I think your point about conservatives is very well taken. You give us a stanza from Amanda Gorman, and I'll read that. Black lives matter, no matter what. Black lives are worth living, worth defending, worth every struggle. We owe it to the fallen to fight, but we owe it to ourselves never to never stay kneeling when the day calls us to stand. So as you point out, I mean, these are, it's a kind of, these are, she's giving a political message, you know, she's instructing, it's very didactic. And you could easily imagine those verses, something of that style or in that spirit being written by a conservative Christian about, you know, life of faith matters, no matter what. The life of faith is worth living, worth defending, worth every struggle. We owe it to our brothers and sisters in Christ to fight, but we owe it to ourselves to never stay standing when the day calls us to kneel. I think I, what I really liked about the piece is that, you know, in some ways, 
it's kind of encouraging. I suppose rap music was the beginning of all this. It's kind of encouraging that there's a, the natural human desire to be edified, instructed, entertained in verse is kind of returning. And that's great. But as you point out, it's great as a social phenomenon, but it's it's not poetry at its best. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is obviously, as you the title of the piece says, it's not poetry that has the full integrity of poetry. And for that, you kind of shift to a very evocative use of that marvelous essay by Michael Oakeshott on the voice of poetry in the conversation of mankind. And you kind of noodle around with that to try to get at or help the reader see what it is that poetry is at its best. So help, help right. us with that, that essay. Yeah. So so Oakeshott, he's, he's arguing is essentially he's, he's arguing that culture or civilization is, is marked by a conversation, that the civilized person is able to engage in various kinds of discourse. And so there's the political discourse that's focused on problem solving and political problems. There's the scientific discourse that is more of a sort of free creativity exploration of the world around us. And then there's there's poetry, which he kind of identifies as a a pleasure in images and, and words. And he says the civilized person is one who is not simply fluent in the political language. And this is often how we think of the civilized person, the one who understands, you know, the the political problems that are facing us, is able to discuss those political problems at length. But the civilized person is one who's able also to, if if not perhaps be fluent, at least understand the scientific language and be in the company of scientists and and to not think of science merely as a tool for solving problems, but as an expression of curiosity and is able to enjoy and participate to some degree in that conversation. And also someone who is also able to enjoy the the poetic language and the beauty. And Oakeshott argues that often what happens is that the political language is the one that sort of, you know, oppresses the other two and that forces science to become devoted to solving problems, political problems, and that forces poetry also to um to to solve problems again political problems using virtue and so so this is his his case and says it shouldn't be this way right that we we should have space for each of these kinds of discourses in a society and one of the touchstones of a of a great society is where they all three exist at the same time and flourish mm-hmm. and um, conversely even though he doesn't maybe spell this out very carefully but society um that is only mediocre tends to be political only and the other two are are not as prominent. And so I take that as sort of a, an approach or a way of thinking about poetry to, to encourage us to give more space to poetry as a language in itself with its, with its own way of speaking about things. People often, you know, you can read, um, you know, W.H. Auden, September 1st, 1939. And it is, I mean, you need to know what, is going on historically at that point. You know, the Second World War is it's about to begin. Right? I think Hitler invaded Poland in, on September 7th, 1939. I could be wrong on the exact date. Right. It's an evocative poem. And I can imagine someone saying, well, wouldn't it be better to read history and we would sort of get it straight, so to speak. But Auden, you know, reading it, and he can both, charm you with the language, which is certainly very much the case 
there, but also to sort of bring you into a moment in a way that even the best narrative historian would, can't do. And I think it strikes me that's kind of what Oakshot is driving at when he with, when he talks about, I think, poetry, as you quote him, begins and ends as language. That's right. Uh, you can't get outside of the of that poem, if you will, and say, what is it about? I mean, it is about a man in a bar on 52nd Street <laughs> contemplating the fact that the world's about to fall apart and we're about to enter in this endless slaughter. But that would be absurd. I mean, it's about the words. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. You can't summarize. If you summarize it, you lose it. You know, in some sense, Oakshot is saying in a, in a slightly different way what Eliot has said himself. You know, when he mm -hmm. writes about the social function of poetry, Eliot says, well, depends on the poem you're talking about, but one function or the first function of poetry is, is pleasure, you know, and pleasure in the language. And then he goes on to say, well, what kind of pleasure? And he says, the kind of pleasure that poetry produces, right? <laughs> he refuses to. <laughs> and of course, that in, does include nuance and insight. I mean, Frost, you know, uh, always, you know, talks about a poem that begins in delight and ends in wisdom, you know, it's often mm. quoted. But but even Frost himself says, like, when he says, goes on to say wisdom, what he means by that is some small you know, sort of insight. It's not this this grand knowledge that I that, that I have that explains everything in the world. Sometimes it's just a a small thing. I understand something slightly differently than I did before, or I understand how much I I don't know about something, and that's a kind of insight that we have there. So, I think Oshot sometimes he one thing I point out the piece is sometimes he presents these three different kinds of languages as entirely separate. You know, as mm -hmm. if when I'm writing politically, I'm only focused on solving problems. And not also maybe trying to write beautifully, I guess, in first things. Four score and seven years ago. That's right. Was <laughs> yeah. brought upon this continent, the new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated. Obviously, the Gettysburg Address is a precisely an instance of where it is. It begins and ends in language. It's extraordinarily memorable. But it's also, obviously, it was written by Abraham Lincoln in order to advance the cause. Um, so I, I think you're, I think that point you make about Oakshot being overly the, the three strands conceptually are distinct, but in the practice of life they often intertwine. What? Oh, another one I think of Jesse Jackson. I think it was '84. He ran against Walter Mondale in the Democratic primary from the outhouse to the White House. Um, <laughs> you know what was one of his? I mean, there's there's a sort of black preacherly tradition of right. oration that is not shy about reaching for kind of memorable rhyming formulations. And I think we underestimate how the human person hearkens to the well-wrought phrase, and it rings truer than a plain expression of the same truth. Yeah. I mean, we, we see it even in children who love repeating certain phrases. They just love repeating the way that language sort of fascinates children. And we have that in all of us, right? But sometimes it gets pressed down by the issues, but still. You conclude with Robert Penn Warren's argument that verbal style and form are actually kind of, they affect our souls. You know, they don't, in other words, a poem doesn't just, I mean, a poem can convey oftentimes in a poem, I'll find myself, as they say, sort of 
a bit of wisdom is crystallized in a particularly powerful way. And so it obviously affects you more. But Warren's argument really is, is different. It's really, again, back to that notion that's being about words and the way words work with words. So what is that argument about style and form as a kind of instrument of soul craft? Yeah, so he argues that a well-formed poem, when we experience a well-formed poem, that a poem, for example, is is complete. You know, there's it, it feels finished when you read it. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. There's there's nothing superfluous in it. So a poem like that teaches us that a, a well-ordered life, a life that is similar, that doesn't have any superfluous elements to it, and that is that is focused on the best things, is a good life. He seems to suggest that poetry in its use of precise language and its use of concise language, that that it teaches us to communicate well is, is part of what it means to live a, a full life. The pleasure we take in language, uh, in, in poetry in particular, it teaches us that a life that is devoted only to practical problems, you know, is is not a great life. You know, that there there's something about just the the beauty of of of, of words in a particular poem that that strikes us as just good and that our lives should reflect that, whether that's in our conversations and our ability to to have, you know, sort of witty conversations with friends and our ability to joke and our use of humor in life, that this is one of the essential aspects of, of life. So he's talking about those elements of style there and also of form that communicate to us just through exposure to it. And I think, you know, he was, Warren was probably thinking largely of what we've, we no longer do, which is teaching poetry to children in schools. And this is, you get these kinds of, these, these benefits, I guess, of, or secondary benefits, as I call them, of poetry, not through talking about them, but just through memorizing them and reciting them and and hearing other people recite them and so forth, which we certainly don't do as much as we used to. The essay has a tone of optimism, I suppose, compared to Dana's lament. Right. You do cite, I mean, you know, the, you. if I could modify Flannery O'Connor, a good critic's hard to find, <laughs> say. but nevertheless, you identify Adam Kirsch and others as, as fine poetic critics. You know, you cite a number of contemporary poets who you think are, are and I agree with you, by the way, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good poetry out there, mm-hmm. some of which appears on the pages of First Things. So absolutely. So am I right to, to to say that you're you're this is a more hopeful moment than 1991 was? Yeah, I think so. I I think it is in in my in my view. There are a number of really accomplished poets out there that are working. I give a, a couple, but but I, it would take another podcast to give a whole list. But mm-hmm. and and then and then younger critics as well. Jason Guriel is one. He's a Canadian critic and poet, and Anthony Madrid, who is in deep Texas someplace. Um, I didn't mention James Matthew Wilson, but he's 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 wonderful in terms of being a poet and a and a critic. And so there's all these folks that are working and, you know, I guess competing a little bit with each other, which is one big element of excellent uh, work that you need is, is you mm-hmm. can't just be in isolation and they're aware of each other. And I think they sort of spur each other on in some ways. Amit Majbudar and and, and Christian uh, Chris, uh, Wyman, so, as I mentioned. But I think one thing that is different a little bit is that, you know, you have the Paris Review, you have the New Yorker that really tend not to publish very, very good poems. And the opportunities for for these poets to to publish their work is is not great. There are some bright spots. You have some smaller presses that are um, publishing poetry 
and bringing out a series of, of poems. And there's some also bright spots in academia. Johns Hopkins have the Hopkins Review is an excellent uh, review or the Literary Matters Review, which has started about uh, eight years ago, publishes a healthy selection of, of, of poetry in their pages. And so that's, I mean, maybe that's me wishing there were more opportunities and um, perhaps it's always been so, right? Poetry has always been a sort of an, an elite interest, a minority taste. It's never going to be widespread in that sense, but one can always hope for more opportunities for posts to publish and for critics to engage in the sorts of um, arguments that they engaged in, you know, 80 years ago. I hope that you're right. And uh, I do think actually we're heading, we, we hit bottom. Uh, and that that uh, I think there is reason to think that Michael Oakeshott would not be in despair in the present moment, and that the voice of poetry, if weak, at least continues to be heard in our in our circles. So, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and thanks uh, uh, especially for all the work you do as poetry editor. I cannot tell you how many people compliment me on the quality of poems. I often get emails from people about i really love x poem or y poem this latest issue i think it was ben myers i got yes. a bunch of emails from ben myers as ignatius to the romans and whenever that happens it makes my my heart sing with joy i just think that if a few verses affect a person that strongly then we're doing something right thank you rusty ben myers is a wonderful wonderful poet so and, and thanks again for the opportunity to talk about the article 